This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Other signs or symptoms that also play into this, like shortness of breath that you don't normally experience, or upper body pain, kind of more generalized. Maybe it's in your back or both your arms or your neck or in your jaw. Might be accompanied with some sweating or some nausea. Those are very general symptoms that men and women might experience. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about the importance of taking care of your heart. We'll discuss laxatives versus fiber for your digestion. We'll find out how to calm yourself for a good night's sleep. And lastly, we'll talk about snacking cakes. But first, a little bit of business. Valentine's Day isn't the only time to think about your heart. Over 2.4 million Canadians are affected by heart disease. Symptoms such as shortness of breath, chest pains, discomfort in your arms, back, neck, or jaw are not to be ignored. Seeking medical assistance is always the safest choice. It could save your life. Don't die of doubt. Don't hesitate. Follow your heart and call 911 at the first sign of heart attack or stroke. Medtronic Canada is committed to alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life for patients with heart disease. Carolyn Pullen is a healthcare executive and change leader in the Canadian national not-for-profit sector. A registered nurse with a Master of Education and a PhD in Knowledge Translation, she's passionate about health promotion and advancing the health of Canadians through education and healthy public policy. She's currently the CEO of Canadian Cardiovascular Society, Canada's national voice for cardiovascular clinicians and scientists, promoting cardiovascular health and care excellence. Prior to taking on this role, Carolyn practices what she preaches, her lifelong professional priority of advocating for health and healthy living, which was shaped by 12 years working as an expedition guide in the Yukon, Northwest Territories, and Nunavut. Today, she still skates to work and has a treadmill desk. What is a treadmill desk? Well, you know, they've kind of gone mainstream now, but back in my day when I put together my own custom treadmill desk, it was a treadmill purchased off Kijiji yeah. for which my husband built a, a plywood desk that positioned on top of the handles. And it meant that I could take long teleconferences or do light reading or that kind of thing, walking instead of sitting. And uh, I used it for many years, although I have to say I don't have it anymore. Well, that's brilliant. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing for the Canadian Cardiovascular Society? Sure. The first thing I'll give you is a little bit of plain language definition of who we are, though, because it's such a mouthful. Sure. The CCS, I'll call it, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society, is the National Professional Association for Canada's cardiologists, cardiac surgeons, and cardiovascular scientists. But the easiest way to think of them is we're the group that represents the heart specialist doctors across Canada. So there's about uh, 2,500 members across the country, and these are the individuals, the women and men, who absolutely specialize in heart health and the uh, health of your arteries and vessels throughout your body that are, of course, connected to the heart. And it's timely because February is Heart Month, a time to bring attention to the importance of cardiovascular health and what we can do to reduce our risk of the disease. Can you tell me a little bit of the history of the month? 
for those of us who are over 50, this will sound so familiar, but it was around the mid-60s around the world, including in North America, that people really started to understand the connection between risky behaviors that we choose as part of our lifestyle to do and heart health. So we started to realize that smoking might not be a great idea or um, not exercising or not eating well could actually over a lifetime affect your heart. And it was when we made those connections that the world started to say, we need to get this message to the public. This just shouldn't be a conversation among, you know, doctors and nurses and health professionals. And the best way to get the message to people that they need to take care of their hearts and make good choices is to have a really big public advocacy campaign that comes around once a year. And that way we can tell people and remind them regularly to take good care of their hearts. So Heart Month was born in the mid-60s, and I think it's been a very prominent annual event. People are somewhat familiar with it coming around. Makes sense in Valentine's Day. Sure. And um, it's a really important month for uh, science because a lot of funds are raised in Heart Month to support heart research. And it's a really important month for getting messages out to the public like we're doing right now. Why is being aware of cardiovascular health so important for Canadians, do you think? Oh, super important. You know, your heart and your brain, along with other organs, but your heart and your brain, you can't live without them, as we all know. Mm -hmm. And I think we're all born pretty perfect, right? You know, as a child, uh, you have this body that's yours to use and to treat with care or otherwise. But it's over the years of life where you make little choices here and there to be an active person or not an active person, to eat a really very diet with not too much processed food or to eat differently from that, to smoke or not to smoke, how much sleep you get or how you manage stress. Those are all risks or or choices that we make over life. And when you're young, you don't really feel the implications of those choices. But as you age and as the groundwork for problems with your heart health start to be laid early in life, it's later in life that you start to feel the consequences of it. And so that's why it's really important that everybody hear messages about why it's important to take care of your heart at every age. You know, get out and jump rope and run and ski and skate and play hockey and eat your peas and, uh, you know, those kind of messages, the kind of things your parents might say to you. Those really pay off down the road if, if you've taken good care of yourself throughout a life rather than making changes later after some damage has been done. Although I do want to point out that a choice like eating more healthy or cutting back or quitting smoking or getting more exercise, those kind of things pay off as soon as you start to make those changes. So even if you don't make those changes until later in life, there's still good changes to make. Fantastic. Let's, let's contextualize this a bit. How many people in Canada are affected by heart disease annually? It's a tough thing to count absolutely precisely because statistics would tell us that if you looked at the general population, most of us, most of adults have between one and three risk factors for heart disease at any given time. Mm-hmm. You know, we might have some bad habits like we've talked about already uh, that we're not managing as well as we could. We might have been even born with a, a heart defect that is silent but is something we need to be 
aware of. So if you count the number of people living with risks for heart disease, it would be in the many millions. In, in fact, it would be most Canadian adults. But if you count the people who actually have a diagnosis of heart disease that they're aware of and that they're doing things to treat, it would be about 3 million Canadians at any given time. And one of the things that the society and other groups are really attuned to is that the Canadian population is gradually getting older demographically, which means that while there's 3 million Canadians with a diagnosis of heart disease today, if we look 2, 3, 5, 10 years down the line, um, when more of us are older, those numbers are absolutely certain to climb much higher because there'll just be more of us in the uh, age range where some of those habits are coming home to roost. What are the signs and symptoms of heart disease that we should be aware of? Well, signs of heart disease, I'll kind of focus on what would be one of the most serious signs or signals that you would get around a sudden heart attack or a cardiac arrest where your heart stops, um, because that's probably one area that people tend to focus on when they think of heart disease. But things you'd want to be attuned to, no matter who you are, are um, very characteristic signs and symptoms, like it might be described as sudden chest pain or discomfort in the chest that seems unusual. Some people might actually have heard that they suffer from angina. So uh, angina is a way to describe that. And usually it's something that lasts more than, you know, just a second. Uh, It might be something that gives you pause to think, this is strange, I haven't felt this before. But adding on to that are other signs or symptoms that also play into this, like shortness of breath that you don't normally experience or upper body pain, kind of more generalized. Maybe it's in your back or both your arms or your neck or in your jaw might be accompanied with um, some sweating or some nausea. Those are very general symptoms that men and women might experience. Although I always point out that men and women can experience signs of a heart attack somewhat differently. And whereas in men, it might more commonly be described as chest pain, women might experience more neck pain or jaw or back pain. And so if you start to notice kind of a coalescence, a sudden coalescence of those kinds of signs and symptoms, that's a pretty strong sign that you should be picking up the phone and dialing 911 and taking what your body is telling you very seriously in that moment. Other than calling 911, what should we do if we have those symptoms? Well, I really do advise that 911 is probably the best course of action because when you are on the call, they'll ask you more detailed questions and give you more precise advice about what you should do next. But of course, the risk you don't want to take is that you minimize what those signs and symptoms are telling you and you don't call 911. Maybe you drive yourself to the hospital or, uh, you know, just delay doing anything. And that's when you could be in a situation where you're actually in an active heart attack and doing a lot of damage to your heart that becomes increasingly harder to fix or to reverse. Or, you know, you could be on the path to a full cardiac arrest. And once you're in a cardiac arrest, you're down to just minutes or seconds to have a defibrillator available or to, uh, you know, restart your heart. So even if you are having second thoughts or or feeling like, ah, it's nothing, 
I encourage anyone to take those signs seriously and call 911. That's good advice. What if you see somebody who you might believe is, is having those symptoms? Is there anything that we can do as, as a third party observer? Oh, absolutely. And you might be the person who points out that, uh, you know, it's obvious to other people that something's going on, even if you haven't admitted it to yourself. Let's just call 911 and, you know, be as persuasive as you can. Stay calm. You don't want panic in a situation like this. Like I say, once you get on the phone with 911, these people are really trained to triage and guide people on the other end of the line around what they should do next. And uh, one reason that people might be hesitant to call 911 themselves is they may be worried that the hospital is not a very safe place to go right now while we're in a pandemic or, you know, it's too much trouble or, you know, it's too much expense. There's other sicker people than me. As a bystander, you're that sober second opinion that says, no, this looks serious to me and and we're going to make the call. It's It's the right thing to do. Sometimes people just need a nudge. So I would encourage anybody to do their friend or their their colleague that favor of being that little voice that encourages them to to take signs and symptoms seriously. I think, you know, something you just said that's really important is, and I think this is impacting us not just with heart disease, but with other ailments, is a reluctance to go seek out medical attention because of COVID. And I gather you're advocating to make sure that people are getting the help that they need no matter what's going on with COVID. Yeah. Oh, you couldn't be more right with those comments. And actually, right at the beginning of the pandemic, when a lot of procedures were canceled because, you know, operating rooms and and clinics and things had to shut down, what our members and other medical professionals too, like emergency room staff and others who would normally see these things, was a very sudden drop in the number of people coming to emerge for heart attacks and other conditions as well. But a heart attacks was very measurable and very noticeable. And what that told us was, for various reasons, people were staying away, delaying care, and that one of the perceptions was, these are not safe places to go. These are places where I might catch COVID. And uh, what I can reassure listeners about is hospitals are probably one of the safest places you could be right now. Very early in the pandemic, emergency rooms and the physicians clinics and offices that were open figured out how to follow the public health protocols to a T. So the same things we're all doing every day, social distancing, good hand hygiene, mask wearing, etc. You will see those things done to a level of perfection in hospitals right now. You do not need to worry that you're putting yourself at risk by going to an emergency room. Uh, Like I said a minute ago, it's a very safe place where you will get very safe care for something that needs very urgent attention. We have time for one last question, and that would be, what would you recommend for people who are looking to prevent heart disease? We talked a little earlier about some of the lifestyle choices that you can make. Everybody has risks for heart disease that they can't manage, like it might be a family history or um, something you're born with. Not much you can do to change it, although lots you can do to care for it and have it treated. But the choices that you can make are eat a healthy diet, as healthy as you can, avoid uh, heavily processed foods whenever you can. Get lots of exercise. Your body loves to move and that's good for your heart. Don't smoke or cut back on your smoking. Look after your sleep hygiene 
aging. Our bodies need rest and good quality sleep is important and um, manage your stress. If you can do those things as just part of your regular habits, you've already gone a long way to reducing your risk for heart disease. And, uh, you know, everyone wants to be healthy as they age and later in the li- in life, staying active and, and really enjoying life. So um, lay those good habits down early and they will carry you through for a long, long way. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. It was nice talking with you. Thanks for the invitation. That was Carolyn Pullen. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss laxatives and fiber for your digestion on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit omegaalphainc.com. NutriPure is a Canadian woman-owned company since 1989. It specializes in formulating and manufacturing natural health supplements that target specific health problems. It seeks to not only reduce symptoms, but to work on the cause of health conditions in order to regain the body's natural balance. Since its founding, NutriPure has consistently provided a line of products that surpasses the industry standards in terms of efficacy, quality, and purity. It has also made it a point of being there for their customers beyond the product by offering customer service led by their professionals on their social media. Talk to their experts about their fiber formula Intest Fibe or laxative formula Laxatil. And for more information, visit Nutripure.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Alexandra Leon is the second generation in Nutripure and has participated in the family business throughout her life. She's earned two university degrees in science at McGill before returning to take on the quality assurance department at Nutripure. She's now the public face of the company and travels across Canada to participate in consumer shows. Her goal is to develop a close connection and a better understanding of people's needs in order to offer the best formulated products possible. Welcome to the show. How are you? Very good. You? I'm doing excellent. So we've got a topic... It's a fun topic today, right? It's, yeah. it's, you know, we don't usually talk about it on the show, but I think it's important. And that's about digestion. And why do you think digestive issues are such a hot topic? I think it's becoming societally a bigger problem. So there's a lot more digestive issues that are arising. I think we're also realizing that digestive system is impacted by a lot more than just the food that we eat. Uh, So in the last five years, there's been a lot of uh, speaking about the gut-brain axis, so the effect of the intestine affecting the brain, but also the other way around. So the brain is affecting the digestive system. So you're talking here about how your mood actually affects the way that you digest. So, for example, if you're stressed out, you'll say that you have knots in your stomach or that you feel nauseous. So you can really see how, how your mood actually impacts the way that you can digest. So it doesn't have to be just stress. It could be if you're happy or if you're angry or if you're sad one day. So it really impacts the digestive health. Another aspect that I actually found very interesting about the digestion is how it's impacted by the core muscles. 
So the core muscles just quickly, so everybody's on the same page. Mm-hmm. It's not just about the abs. So you're talking about the muscles that start in the back of your spine and goes all the way to your belly button. So the transverse and the obliques are also included in that. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yep. Your core muscles has been shown to be correlated with your digestive health, which means that it's less impacted by the amount of time that you're training, your fat content. It's really more correlated with the time you spend not moving around. So the best predictor of your digestive health is the amount of time that you move around. Right. Which is quite interesting, right? Yeah. So the, which is probably why when you talk about eating big meals and you're told, oh, go for a walk afterwards, it's going to help with your digestion. Well, that's what you're doing. You're, you're activating your core muscles. So is it, is it the core muscles are helping the food to move through the intestines? Is that is that what it's doing? Or is it, it your yeah. position because you're not sitting? Well, so we're not exactly sure. So the research just shows a correlation, but it probably has to do with something that has to do with the core muscle is activated. There's a direct link of activating the muscles that line the intestinal wall. So yes, there seems to be a direct link between those two activation. Uh, It does also create a kind of a pressure where it compresses the the intestinal wall, which means that it helps with the the peristaltic movement, yes. Cool. So one of the topics uh, that I think uh, is arising for a lot of people, and certainly as we age, is constipation. Yes. So constipation is one of the major issues when we talk about digestive complaints. Mm-hmm. Usually it's constipation and heartburn. So those are the two major ones that people come to us to find solutions. Mm-hmm. It's not that constipation is the only symptoms or the only problem when it comes to digestive issues. It's just that it's it's more easily recognizable. It's something that kind of stops people from their daily routine. Yep. It causes a lot of cramping and things like that. And it does cause issues in the long run as well. So it's important to really go and and target that constipation if there's an issue. Okay. And obviously, aside from the obvious that, you know, it it can be painful and, you know, you can have bloating, but why is constipation problematic for people? So the way that you have to see it is that constipation means that your waste that you're creating is not being eliminated, which means that it's staying in your intestine. And what that means, it's not, it's not just floating around, it's, it's coating the side of the wall. Your intestinal wall is used, or the main purpose is for absorption. So it's absorbing all the nutrients, all the vitamins, the minerals that you need. So if the waste is stuck to the wall, that part of the intestinal wall is not doing its job. So you're, you're basically eliminating or are reducing the capacity of absorption. So you could be eating a really great diet, but if you're constantly constipated, you're actually not fully absorbing everything that's in your diet. Okay, so it's not just the issue of pain and cramping. We're just not getting the nutrients in through our intestines that we normally would. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Cool. So there are different ways to deal with constipation. And, you know, the two of them that I think everybody are familiar with are laxatives and fiber. So can, can yeah. you give sort of a rundown on the differences between the two? So a laxative is going to be working on the conduit. So it's working on, like we were discussing before, the muscles that surround the uh, intestinal wall. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what it does is that it reactivates the muscles. It activates the peristaltic movement, so the natural peristaltic movement of the intestine, and it helps to eliminate. Okay. So the main plant that you're looking at is going to be the aloe. Mm-hmm. Okay. While the fiber on the other side works on the content. So it helps to bind the waste together to create the feces that's going to be 
afterwards eliminated. Okay, mm-hmm. and it also helps with the fluidity through the canal. So it's going to help with the mucous membrane to create a kind of a film that helps with the fluidity. Okay, so fiber you're you're talking more of the psyllium. So laxative is the aloe, and the fiber is more like a psyllium. When you're saying aloe and, and psyllium, you're talking about the natural products or the natural yes. ingredients that you would There's use. Yeah. yeah, in a, in a nutraceutical form of either a laxative or, or fiber, correct? Exactly. Yep. yep. Okay. So, assuming that I'm constipated, let's yep. just, let's just say that Jamie's constipated. How do I know whether I should be taking a laxative or whether I should be focusing on fiber? That's the million dollar question. It is. So, <laughs> it's what people ask all the time. The best way for you to know and to kind of self-diagnose a little bit, mm-hmm. obviously it's better to go see a doctor and make sure that everything's okay before, mm-hmm. but you can base yourself on your symptoms and your lifestyle. So if you have the urge to go to the bathroom, but you have a hard time evacuating, so you have the feeling, you, you have the, the push, but every time you go, it's, it feels inadequate. It feels like there's still something there, or you see that your stool is small or clumpy or multiple balls instead of just being like one big normal one mm-hmm. it can also be sticky so sticky it's going to stick to your i'm sorry to say but your your toilet bowl yep. those are signs that there's something wrong with the content so like we were discussing before the content is the problem okay? okay so it's not that there's no muscular movement it's just that the muscular movement isn't efficient in order to push down the the, the content okay so these are individuals who are Dehydrated, who usually have poor sugars to fiber ratio. So their diet has a lot more sugar and not enough fiber. Right. So somebody like that is probably having too many refined foods and exactly. not not enough whole foods. And exactly. my guess is your recommendation would be to include more fiber in the diet, right? You're so good. Yep, exactly. On the other side, so if you have someone who is bloated, has cramps, has flatulence, but they don't have the need to go. So they do feel that there's waste that needs to be evacuated, but they don't go to the bathroom. Okay, so that's a conduit issue. So there's no muscle activity. Okay, mm-hmm. So the, the content may or may not be good. That depends on people. But there's nothing pushing it forward. Mm-hmm. So these are usually people who are anxious or perfectionist or what you would call a, like a control freak. So yep. they try to control their environment. Yes. Okay? I might be one of those people. I'm just saying. (laughs) There's a lot of people that actually tell us that they've trained themselves to not go to the bathroom during the day. So, for example, they don't like going to the bathroom in in public places, so they'll only go in their home. I was only commenting on my type A personality. (laughs) None of the listeners want to know about the details of the bowel movements, although I must say this is very interesting, and and I've never heard, like, we've never discussed this before. So keep going. Don't let me stop you. No, that's fine. That's fine. So, yeah, some people have learned to hold it in so long that it's actually inhibited their capacity of natural peristaltic movement of the intestine. So you kind of have to like relearn how to, to create those movements. Wow. Okay. Yeah. These people are usually people who are not going to respond to fibers. They've probably been chronic constipators, so they've been constipating for multiple years. Mm-hmm. And these are the best candidates for laxatives. Okay. So now that we sort of have a primer on which type of product uh, we should be going for, whether, and I I presume there's people who may need both, but leaving that aside for a moment, how do we choose the right product? Okay, so I think in general when choosing a product, the golden rule is always that you cannot treat just a symptom. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So you can't just go for the symptom. You have to look at the issue as a whole. Okay. So for this instance, let's say constipation, mm-hmm. the goal is not just to move the stool down the track. Okay. So constipation causes irritation. It causes inflammation. It causes micro fissures in the lining of the intestine. So those things also have to be healed or else it becomes further issues down the line. Mm-hmm. So when you choose a product, you have to find a formula that also helps to heal these wounds. So you're going for anti-inflammatory plants, plants that help soothe and heal the mucous membrane. Mm-hmm. Examples of these plants would be like a licorice, red elm, mallow. Mm-hmm. So these are natural plants that have these specific abilities to really help to rebuild the wounds that are being created and decrease the inflammation. So you have a better chance of eliminating constipation on the long run. Mm-hmm. And we have time for one last question. And what okay. should you look for for a fiber product? I would say the fibers that you're looking for is obviously the psyllium. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about digestive issues, digestive products in general, mm-hmm. because the digestive tract is very sensitive, you cannot choose a formula that has fillers or stabilizers or colorants or additives or sugars. Okay, So you're looking for a really clean formula. Obviously, if you can find ingredients that are organic, so there's no chemicals or no pesticide added. So you can look for a formula that would have psyllium, licorice, red elm, or or mallow. Those would be the best uh, combination together. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Will you come again soon? Yes, of course. Fantastic. That was Alexandra Leon. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to calm yourself for a good night's sleep on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Centre is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8300 square foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Heather Lillico is a registered holistic nutritionist and yoga and meditation instructor. She focuses on mental health, having been overwhelmed by anxiety and depression for most of her adult life. By incorporating nutrients to nourish your mind and mindfulness techniques to slow you down, Heather knows it's possible to get off the hamster wheel of looping thoughts and enjoy the magic of a clear mind. For more info, you can visit heatherlillico.com or follow her on Instagram at heather underscore L-I-L. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. Thanks, as always, for having me back. So how did you sleep last night? 
Well, a little bit nervous to come on the radio again, so maybe <laughs> a little more tossing and turning than normal. <laughs> so the reason I ask, of course, is because that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about getting yourself in a place where you can have a good night's sleep. So why do you think people have a hard time falling asleep? Probably a variety of factors, but I think one of them is that we live in this culture of what I call do more, be better, which is where we feel like we always have to be doing something. We have to be on. And that means it's hard to shut off at the end of the day. And working in this area that I do of anxiety management, I'd say about 90% of my clients have trouble falling asleep. And at the end of the day, our body stops, but our brain keeps going and you know we've all had those random thoughts you're trying to fall asleep and you're wondering like did i offend somebody by accident today or what am i doing with my life heather those are givens whether i've offended somebody that's like i take that as a yes and i just move (laughs) forward but i agree with you i do spend a lot of time ruminating you know which it's impossible to fall asleep if you if you start you know rehashing things that you have already done right exactly a lot of us are replaying our day and sort of criticizing like everything that we've done that day or how could I have done this different? Like all of these random thoughts, you know, pop up. Sometimes I'll be trying to sleep and I'll remember an embarrassing thing that I did like in fifth grade. I'm like, where did that come from? Yep. I I do that all the time. So what happens when we don't get a good night's sleep? What happens physiologically and psychologically? Yeah. Well, I mean, we know instinctively, you know, when we don't sleep, it doesn't feel good. We, We feel irritable. We have mood swings and you might feel like, you're, you're sort of in a fog, and what's happening when we sleep, when we sleep well, is that our neural pathways are being strengthened to remember new information. So if you're not sleeping well, it's going to impact your ability to learn and to form new memories. Now, it's also going to impact some of your main stress hormones. So when we don't sleep, we see spikes in cortisol and mm-hmm. epinephrine or adrenaline, and essentially your body is trying to spike these things to keep you awake. But the result is that we end up feeling more stressed, more anxious during the day. And it's kind of like a cycle, right? Then we can't sleep at night because our adrenaline is spiking. Right. And it has physiological effects too, right? Like when you mentioned cortisol, it's been shown that if you are attempting to lose weight, it's more difficult if you're not getting a good night's sleep. And also your body needs the sleep in order to repair itself. If, for example, you're exercising hard and you, you know, your body needs literal rest. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's if you're not sleeping and that cortisol is spiking, it's going to affect weight. And as well, it affects your main hunger hormone. So ghrelin, for example, your main hormone that governs when you feel hungry, it's going to rise, meaning that you feel more hungry and your body effectively is trying to eat itself to stay awake. Exactly. All right. So what can we do? How can we turn our brains off at the end of the day? Well, let's talk about a couple of things that we can try out. And I think The goal when we're trying to fall asleep is really to direct the mind because it's very hard to shut off the brain per se because it's the job of our brain to think, but we can direct it towards a certain task. And this is why at the end of the night, we want something that's not so interesting that we want to stay up and finish it, right? So you don't want the latest page turner book. You don't want a series on Netflix. We want to direct the mind. So one of my favorite ways to do it is with this task that I call the alphabet task. Mm -hmm. So you choose a category. So let's say, for example, fruits. And we start with the beginning of the alphabet. So, Jamie, can you think of a fruit that starts with the letter A? Apple. Perfect. Everybody says apple. (laughs) It's so easy. Come to mind. I think this is what we've learned in school, right? So we start with the letter A, and 
you want to bring to mind everything that you can about that apple. So you start to picture it in your mind, picture the color of it, the smell of it, the texture of holding it, maybe the sound as you bite into it. You might even go further and picture where does this apple grow in the wild. So everything that you can picture about that apple and then you move on to the next letter. So B might be for, do you have another one? Blueberry. Blueberry. Okay. So we picture the blueberry, right? The color of it, the the smell of it. Again, what does it look like where it grows? Everything that we can picture about it. And then we continue and move through the alphabet. Now, when you do this, your mind is going to wander, and that's perfectly natural. This is really a mindfulness tool that we're using to direct the mind. So we just want to come back to the next letter that we're on. Now, you can do it with fruits, but you can also try it with other categories, vegetables, countries, cities, animals. And you do want to switch it up because if you know what's coming, then it's not as effective as a mindfulness tool because the mind is just going to wander again. So we want to bring it back whenever it wanders. And I find that this is very helpful because it helps turn the volume down on some of those background thoughts, right? All those Mm -hmm. thoughts we were talking about, the rumination that's happening, your to-do list, whatever pressures you might feel in everyday life, this helps you direct the mind. And I'll say that I very rarely get past the letter M when I do it and I'm out. That's good. I I replay poker hands in my head. These are just variations on counting sheep, but I agree with you. Exactly. Yeah, we just want to give the mind enough of a complex task to do, but again, not something so interesting that it wants to stay up. And I find with counting sheep, it just gets too repetitive, right? Yeah, no, One, two. Yeah, we know what's coming next. So we want to give the mind a little bit more of a task. All right. What other calming tasks do you like to do before going to bed that you find helps? A couple different ones. I love doing some gratitude before bed. So I keep a journal beside the bed and I list out a few things that happened that day that I am grateful for. And the key when you do this is to really cultivate the feeling of gratitude. So maybe you're grateful that your boss gave you praise today in a meeting and identify why you're grateful for that thing and what it felt like in the moment. Mm-hmm. So that's another a mind one that we can use. We can also come to the body and use that as a way to relax. So another one that I love is called progressive muscle relaxation. And we start usually at the feet. I like to start and you scrunch up your toes and you hold them there for essentially a, a breath, no more than five or 10 seconds, I would say, and then let them release and relax. And then you move on to your feet, scrunch up the entire sole of your foot and then let it relax. And you work your way up through the body, then, you know, onto the calf, the shin, and then let it relax. And the idea there is that, again, you're focusing your mind on something, on the sensations of the body. And when we relax our muscles, first when we tense them, and then we relax them, it's a more effective way to relax the body. It relaxes the cross bridges of the muscle fibers more. Mm -hmm. And then maybe I'll mention one more. Mm -hmm. I love doing guided meditations or even a sleep story before bed. So it gives our minds something to do instead of laying there thinking, you know, if I fall asleep now, I'll get seven hours now, six hours, that super fun game that's very stressful. We instead can direct it towards something else. So using an app like Calm or Insight Timer, Spotify as well has sleep stories on them, which are stories that give interesting amount of detail on something quite mundane and that allows us to pull our focus towards that instead of ruminating. Okay. Is there anything that we should eat or not eat before bed that will impact our ability to get some sleep? 
There are certain foods that we can use to help the body produce sleep-promoting compounds. So some of my favorite foods that can help with sleep are things like kiwis. Kiwis have serotonin, which is our brain's main happy neurotransmitter, and it's actually a precursor to melatonin, the Mm -hmm. main sleep hormone in our body. So kiwis are a rich source of that. Oats as well. Tart cherry juice has quite a bit of evidence behind it that it contains melatonin and can help us sleep. And any sort of nuts, almonds, and pistachios are great for melatonin and also magnesium, a very calming mineral for the body. So this might look like, you know, one to two hours before bed, having a small bowl of oatmeal, maybe with some cut up kiwi and some nuts sprinkled on top. And of course, we want to keep the portion small because you don't want to go to bed feeling overly bloated or full. Mm -hmm. What about herbal remedies or teas? I'm a big fan of, you know, anything natural that we can do to help the body come back into balance. So some of my favorite uh, teas to use are things like chamomile, tulsi, or holy basil. It's great. It helps boost your body's natural ability to cope with stress and it also helps regulate your sleep rhythm. Other ingredients like passion flower, lemon balm, valerian. Now, I will say with valerian, for some people, it helps promote sleep. For others, it has sort of a, a pinball effect and they feel more awake. So that's one that you'd want to just experiment with and see. But most tea shops will have like a sleepy blend and you'll see probably a combination of some of these ingredients. And in order to prevent going to the bathroom in the middle of the night, I would say, you know, two hours before bed maybe. And don't feel like you have to have a full cup either. You could have a half the amount of liquid, but brew just the same strength of tea. So those are some that help. We can also use different smells to help relax the body as well. So scents like lavender, rose, ylang-ylang. You can use some of these essential oils. You can dilute them in water. A bit of alcohol makes sort of a room spray or a spray on your pillow. Or I'll just put some of these in my hands and smell them before bed. And we know that they can be quite relaxing to the body. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me back. That was Heather Lillico. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss snacking cakes on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for Tonic Magazine for many, many years, and she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife Naomi. Hi, sweetheart. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm excited. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody in the studio is excited <laughs> because we're talking about snacking cakes. 
Yeah, what could be bad about snacking cakes? Exactly. I don't even know what they are. I mean, what? What? I mean, I know what they are, but like, help us out for those who don't, who've never heard of a snacking cake. What is it? It is, as the name suggests, a cake that you would snack on. But it's actually a, it's a thing, which I also didn't realize. I didn't know it's, it was a thing either. Yeah, it's an everyday cake. Ideally, a cake that can be made without a mixer from ingredients that you're likely to have on hand. So it's a cake that you would have in the afternoon, for example, when you just need cake and you've got flour, butter, sugar, oil, and, you know, whatever flavorings, and you just put it together, may or may not have icing, you know, it depends how fancy you want to get. It might have, let's say, chocolate chips or fruit, but it's a quick cake that's not super sweet and not at all complicated that you might just have as a snack. Yeah, see, in my brain, snacking cake is the cake that you sneak into the kitchen for that you cut with the knife that's like on the counter and you don't even take a plate. You just kind of put it on a napkin or you don't, maybe you're like a big slob and you just like, you scarf it down on your way back to going to the, in front of the TV. Like if, if that could happen, yeah, that is possible. Exactly. I mean, snack is a snack. So I say afternoon, it could be evening snack. It could yeah. be morning snack. Could, it, it could be the snack I eat after you go to sleep. Yeah. Uh, who, who could say? Uh, exactly. I mean, with the way I was thinking of it, because I, you know, used to uh, go out and work in an office, is that there would be cake, which would be somewhere in the kitchen or yeah. unfortunately outside my office, and people would just come by, as you say, and just take little pieces every time they walk by, exactly. um, adding up to one big piece. But it's that kind of cake, and there's no office, there's no sort of three o'clock birthday cake, yeah. uh, no sugary donut that you just pick up for most people. So you're stuck at home, but you still want a snacking cake. This and is the way the interesting it. thing about the snacking cake is, is the calories from it don't even count. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> so if, if one wants a recipe for snacking cakes, where do you start? What do you suggest? Okay, well, first of all, many people would already have such a recipe. You know, th- those are the kinds of old-fashioned cakes that, you know, like I still use old recipes or my mother's recipe for, let's say, coffee cake or banana cake, those kinds of things. Yeah. But if you want, you know, if you don't have that or you are bored with that, you want something new. There's a new book that uh, came out that is called Snacking Cakes. It's by an author called Yossi Arefi, and she is a she's an award-winning blogger, and uh, she's also written a previous cookbook called Sweeter Off the Vine, which I have. Mm-hmm. And so she's you know she's a baker, and this is a great book. I first took it out from the library, and then I thought, yeah, you know what, I actually need to invest in this book because. It will get used. And I've made a bunch of recipes because it's just, I don't tend to like fancy cakes, you know, tons of icing. Sometimes I just want or other somebody else wants a cake and I just want something quick and easy. And this is full of quick and easy cakes. All right. So let's discuss some of the cakes that you've made from this book. Okay, my favorite so far is the salty caramel peanut butter cake. This is an easy peanut butter cake. You know, it's just just mixed together. It's made with oil. Oil-based cakes, you know, butter butter tastes good, but cakes made with oil tend to be more tender, which I like. Uh, and it's everything's just mixed together, and then it's got a kind of a caramel icing that's kind of like fudge. You could make it without the icing, but the icing is quite good. No, you really can't. You have to put the icing <laughs> on that. You really need the icing on that one. Sorry, I disagree with you. But anyways. I, know, I was speaking theoretically. Like, okay. I think the icing, which is the salty caramel part, really makes the cake. Of course it does. Yeah, otherwise it's just a plain peanut butter cake. Yeah. No, for all our listeners, do not 
avoid the icing. If you're going to make it, put the icing on it. Okay. And what I like about the, the book is she suggests, you know, this is a pretty small, you know, like an 8 by 8 cake, but you can double the recipe and put it in a bun pan. You can top it with a chocolate frosting. You know, like there's mm-hmm. mix and match opportunities, too, depending on what it is you like. But I like the recipe as written. Mm-hmm. We also made a minty chocolate malt cake. Yep. And this was a simple chocolate cake with that had malt powder in it, which I appreciate. Not everybody just has malt powder. Yeah, it's hard to access, actually. Yeah, but we do mm-hmm. because we use it and we have some obscure ingredients. And if you had, I think if you had Ovaltine or something like that, you could use it uh, as a substitution. Mm-hmm. In any case, it's got a chocolate mint frosting, which was very easy to put together. And uh, I wasn't, wasn't 100% sure whether the malt and the mint would go together, but it was good. Yep, I agree. Yeah. And then we made a blackened blueberry ricotta cake. I love ricotta cakes because they they add a lot of moisture. And they don't taste like cheese exactly, but they just uh, add some depth to olive oil cakes and oil cakes. And I think in that one, I added some lemon zest because I always like lemon. It was was a great cake. I have lots of cakes like that, but this Mm -hmm. was a very easy and good one. You substitute whatever berries you like and you have, you know, in the freezer even. Okay. I also made a berry cream cheesecake, and that was similar to the to the ricotta cake, but without the um, without the ricotta in it. And it had chunks of cream cheese, um, which was interesting because the cream cheese wasn't sweet, so it was yeah. not that sweet of a cake. And it, you know, overall, when you take a bite and you get a piece of the cream cheese and a piece of the sweet cake in the berries, that you end up. It's a substitute for a cheese danish. Yeah, it, it kind of reminded me of a cheese danish. I, I would say it was my least favorite of, of the ones you made from this book, but it was I, still interesting. Yeah, I agree. Because considering how many options there are, I... I would probably not make that one again. But there were other ones that I haven't tried, like a coconut lime cake, an almondy plum cake. There's one called All the Spices Cake with a vanilla bean glaze, so nice for the fall, winter. Mm-hmm. A chocolate almond olive oil cake with raspberries. Mm. Uh, I, I really like olive oil cakes, as I mentioned. Um, often I need to make a cake that doesn't have any dairy in it, and mm-hmm. I find... The olive oil cakes have a really nice flavor. They're always very moist. And I tend to make them with uh, lemon, you know, lemon and almonds. But this is a recipe for a chocolate almond olive oil cake that also has raspberries. And so that sounds really good to me. Okay, so if you didn't have a snack and cake book, are there other resources that you would recommend for, for some simple, straightforward cakes? Yeah, so I have another book that I have recently come across. It's new. It's called One Tin Bakes by a man named Ed Kimber. And I found the the name confusing at first because I thought, well, like, what's a tin? But it's a British book, and they call their baking pans tins. And the concept behind the book is that you only need one pan, a 9 by 13 inch metal baking pan, in order to make any number of things. So this would be uh, for somebody who doesn't mind breaking out their mixer or making something that might be more complicated, but they don't have a lot of space for pans. There's only one pan. Mm-hmm. And that's a great book too. Like there are snacking cake type things and then there are also more complicated, you know, brioche or buns or pies, but I want to focus on the cakes. Sure. Cuz I made a uh, coffee coffee cake. 
Yeah, that was good. You just made that one. Yep. Yep. It was really good. So that was, you know, it has like a brown butter streusel, which can never be bad. And the ribbon flowing through the cake was made with espresso powder and cinnamon and sugar. And you couldn't detect the espresso. Like it didn't taste like coffee. I I agree. I thought it would, but it just kind of tasted caramelly. And so it was just a really nice, moist coffee cake, you know, the kind of a, a true snacking cake in my view, although you did need a mixer for that one. And, you know, there was a few different components, the cake, the middle and the streusel, but it was good. Yeah, I know it was good. And I agree with you. You didn't really taste the coffee. I think it was more there for depth of flavor. Mm-hmm. Now, usually you would mix coffee with like a chocolate flavoring, but I actually think it kind of worked with the cinnamon here to give it more depth. Mm-hmm. I also made the peanut butter rookies is what he called it. it was like a two layer cake brownie cookie layer and a peanut butter cookie layer and so it was in between a brownie like a chewy brownie or a soft cookie uh, two layer which was which was not not hard at all again needed a mixer so a, a bit more work than the snacking cakes but if you like peanut butter and chocolate and many people do including mm-hmm. me yep. uh, this was a good one yeah that one to me like when i was eating it it was delicious, but it reminded me more of a square, like, you know, like, like not an Nanaimo bar, but like texturally, it, it, it felt like a square as opposed to a cake. Yeah, I mean, it's similar, depends how you like your things. Some people like things crispy or yeah. soft or cakey. And so the way you choose to bake it, the baking pan you choose will have an effect on the texture of the cake. And it's easier. You didn't have to shape cookies. You just put it all in the pan and baked it. There's also a, I didn't make this, but an almond and mixed berry, what he called dump cake. Um, and he tells you how to make your own cake mix. So you, you mix the dry ingredients and store them. So when you, when you need a cake right away, you pour the dry mix right into the pan, pour the wet ingredients over the dry, mix it all in the pan and sprinkle nuts or berries over it. So, so that's an easier one. You know, similar with the almonds and the berries and, you know, like a basic snack cake where you keep the dry ingredients already mixed on hand instead of buying a cake mix. Yeah, I kind of get like the theory behind it, although we really don't tend to have that many cake emergencies. But yeah, I I need cake stat. But yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. Anything else to recommend? Last question. There's an olive oil cherry snack cake in the book, too. Which is, you know, so he also talks about snack cakes. And, you know, so if you really want that kind of snack cake easy mix, there's another one. So a lot of a lot of good things, a good one to check out. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. Will you come back next month? Absolutely. Fantastic. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Carolyn Pullen, Alexander Leon, Heather Lillico, and Naomi Bussin. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The January and February issue is now probably still available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss women's healthy hormones, how your beliefs are your skeleton keys to who you are, and cooking with alcohol. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.